many of you know Callie, Callie Burns. Callie did the uh, autobiography of Mary Magdalene the drama last Sunday. Um, Callie's father, Rich, has been somebody that we've been praying for for about a year and a half. Um, a lot longer for Callie and, and the family. Uh, did not know Christ and basically uh, has had uh, several incidences of heart attack and some close calls and, and close calls and death. And, and he had not been in church for probably 30 years. And last, last week he came in to, to uh, witness the, the Callie's dramatic presentation, was able to hear the gospel. And I guess there was a dramatic, we're not sure exactly what happened as far as everything, but we know that he was changed and transformed by that experience. And uh, he died Thursday morning and went home. And we believe he went home to be with the Lord. And uh, he heard the gospel. So uh, thank you. Continue to pray for uh, Callie and the family. Uh, it's a very shocking thing, but uh, I believe, and because of the way he went very peacefully, uh, we believe that he came to faith in Jesus Christ uh, between Sunday and when he went home. So, so uh, we'll just keep praying. There is no such thing as an insignificant Sunday. Every Sunday, every Sunday is very significant. We never know what kind of life transformation God is going to do. So we're uh, delighted and excited to see what God is doing, and please pray uh, for Callie. The, the memorial service is in eastern Wisconsin on Wednesday, so that's, it's a ways away. But let's pray, shall we, as the ushers come forward and uh, bring God's tithes and our offerings. Father, we thank you that you transform lives, you change lives, and we thank you that you, by your grace, have seen fit to, Lord, share the gospel the timing is so unusual, Lord, that we just thank you for what you did in, in Rich's life, and we pray now for the family as they deal with the loss. And I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to build your church here at Eau Claire Wesleyan as you do the supernatural things in our lives. Take now what we give to you and use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Jesus, we praise your great name. We thank you that you are our redeemer, our healer, defender, and Father, there are many here this morning that need those words. They need that role, the power of Jesus, to be released on their behalf, to defend them, to heal them, perhaps to redeem them if they don't know you, Jesus. And I just pray that you, by your power and by your strength today, would speak truth to each one of us. Thank you that we have the opportunity to praise you and worship you. And as we worship you and praise you, not only are you glorified, but we are transformed. You change our lives because your presence, your person is here. And I just pray that you would bring that confidence in every person's life today, that you would encourage each and every one of us because of your great name. And the fact that your Holy Spirit is welcome in this place to do your work. Father, now take the Word of God, the living Word of God, apply it to our lives that we would be changed because we've been here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Do you remember as a kid, 
when you were out in public, a park or downtown on a city street or at the beach or maybe even at the airport, that you just noticed all these fascinating things on the ground. Children are built lower to the ground, so they just kind of notice all that stuff. I spent the first seven years of my life in Japan, and I remember walking down these narrow streets in the city where we lived, or walking near the tracks at the train station, and I'd pick up all kinds of things. Little rocks and interesting sticks and colorful candy wrappers, discarded boxes, cigarette butts, little trinkets, and treasures. And into my pocket they would go, collected for later examination. Once home, I'd pull all of them out of my pockets and spread them out on the floor to have a closer look. My parents would see, and of course they would ask, where did you get all that stuff? When I told them their reaction was as predictable as the sunrise, they would say, don't touch that, you don't know where that's been. Did your parents ever tell you that, anybody? Did you ever say that to your children, don't touch that, you don't know where it's been, okay. Glad we're in the same community here, same, same universe. Now there were some good upstanding church people, Christians in the first century church in a town named Corinth, or a city named Corinth, that were making a similar statement, only it was modified to reflect an issue that they dealt with all the time. That statement was, don't eat that, you don't know where it's been. Don't eat that, you don't know where it's been. Today we're going to look at a situation we don't face today, but was uppermost in the minds of the Christians in the church in Corinth. And in reality, we face many similarities and actual parallels that are very similar and very appropriate today. So today we're going to look at don't eat that. You don't know where it's been. And I want us to, to, you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. 1 Corinthians 8, it's on page 928 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Or you can follow it on the screen. It's a short chapter, so we're going to read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 8. Verse 1, now about food and sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but, knowledge, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is what, but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him 
default. Weird, isn't it? Kind of strange. Don't eat that, you don't know where it's been. That was the solution of some in the church in Corinth for a problem they encountered every day and something that we encounter on a daily basis. This was an issue of lifestyle. It was lifestyle. And it was a gray area. It was a gray area. Our our lifestyle is defined by actions we take, things that we do based on our values and our view of right and our view of wrong. Some actions we know are right, some actions we know are wrong, but what about these areas in the ozone, the gray areas? We have black, white, and gray. Black are actions that are wrong for everybody, okay? White, actions that are always right for all people, that's easy, but what about the gray areas? Actions that seem right to some but seem wrong for others. Black, white, and gray in more than 50 shades of gray. How do we handle those issues? In our American culture today, where everyone chooses what is right or wrong for them, isn't everything gray? Well, I'm talking not about our culture out there. I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians who believe in divine revelation. They believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God, and it reveals truth, it reveals right and wrong, and it reveals morality. We base our lifestyles on the Bible, the Bible being our standard of faith and practice. That's what following Jesus Christ is all about. Our lifestyles as Christians are or ought to be based on the values and truth found in the Bible. But what about the actions the Bible does not address? Ah, there's the rub. There's the rub. One of those issues in the Corinthian church was eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, before you write this message off, it's totally irrelevant because you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols and you don't know what that means. Let's look at the background in history so we can understand the context and how it applies today. Very relevant today. Well, the Corinthians were very religious or superstitious people. They worshiped many gods. Idolatry and pagan sacrifices permeated every part of their society, both Greeks and Romans. And food was a very important part of their religion and practice of faith. Ah, we can identify with that part, okay. Witness the importance of food to the practice of our church life, whether it's coffee and donuts and coffee or potlucks and barbecue, picnics, whatever. Food has a lot to do with what we do. Well, food and meals were also part of the Corinthians' ritual and worship. This included, as part of their ritual set things, where there were two kinds of sacrifice. They would sacrifice, there was a private sacrifice, where an animal was slaughtered and divided into three parts. There was a token when they sacrificed, slaughtered an animal, they'd take a little bit and they'd sacrifice it on an altar. Um, The priests who facilitated the sacrificial system would get their cut or their share, and the worshiper who who had brought it received the rest of the meat and could then give a dinner party, a banquet, a feast, or a wedding, okay? That's what happened. The private sacrifice was not an everyday occurrence, but it was used for significant days and family celebrations. So a lot of private sacrifices going on. Now there was also the public sacrifice. And here the animal was slaughtered and some of it was burned on the altar, like the other. Some was given it to the priest or the local magistrates, who, you know, there's the mayor, the city council, council members, or school board members, you know, it was just given to spread out. So they get a little bit of the meat. Whatever was left over was sold to the local restaurant, the Texas Roadhouse Grill, famous Dave's or Johnny's Italian Steakhouse, okay? They would sell it out there for the restaurant. 
or it was sold to the local grocery store at Gordy's or Festival Foods or Woodman's or Sam's Club, the local meat market. Meat that was eaten in any place or fashion always had some connection to sacrifice, okay? So this was common, it was every, everything that happened it was, with meat was always sacrificed. Connection to, to some kind of pagan ritual. Now it got more complicated than that. These Corinthians were very superstitious. They believed that in demons and devils, and they believed the air was just full of demons, and they're always trying to find a way into a person to injure their body and unhinge their mind. And one, one way they felt, and they believed that demons got into people and gained entry was through food. So the demon settles on that T-bone steak, the guy eats a steak, and zap, demon possessed. So you can see, they got, you gotta take precautions here. You don't wanna get demon possessed that way. To avoid this, nearly all meat was dedicated to some god before slaughtering. They figured if they did this, they're not gonna get, have any of these issues. The easiest thing, of course, was to become a vegetarian. But one could hardly find any meat anywhere in Corinth that had not been connected in some way to pagan gods. They did not have separation of church and state, nor church and stake. They didn't have separation. You could not go into the local grocery store and, and read USDA labeled secular cow and sacred cow. It, it just didn't happen, okay? You couldn't find it. So the, the challenge of living the Christian life in the pagan culture was, how do we navigate this issue? And you thought, Saint, you thought Eau Claire was um, complicated. So here comes Fred. Fred's a brand new believer, just came to Christ recently. Okay. He comes down the aisle at Gordy's with a shopping cart, and he stops at the meat counter and reads from the grocery list his wife gave him. One pound ground beef, six pounds roast beef, and three pounds of sirloin tip. He's ready, ready to, to buy it, but he remembers these steers were probably sacrificed to idols. Now, he's a Christian, and he wants no part of that. So he turns and heads off to the produce section when who do you suppose shows up at the meat counter? George who leads his connect group and is also a board member. Wow, what does Fred do now? Fred runs into another problem. His cousin Demetrius is getting married and he's invited Fred, but part of the marriage celebration is a big party at the local pagan temple, including the sacrifice and dedication of the meat to a god, followed by a feast. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, this was being a participant with demons. So what does Fred do in all of this? You didn't know life was so complicated in the first century, did you? Out of this situation, a problem was created, and I want us to look at what that problem was. Here's the church in the middle of this crazy culture. What do they do? Now, the church decided they're gonna deal with this in two different ways. The first one, there were two primary group classifications at the church. And all the people knew and agreed on black and white, okay? They, there were the black and white they knew it was a sin to worship idols and everybody was in agreement on that. But what about this gray area of eating meat that had been offered to idols? How do we handle that? Well, first of all, the first group we had were mature believers. Mature believers. This group of mature believers have lots of knowledge. They had studied the word of God. They had been the first converts to the Christian faith. They were the charter church members. They'd been there for long. And it had been a long time since they experienced 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The pagan past that, they, that was their past was way in the distant future past. They, they just didn't even think about it anymore. 
To this group of mature believers, all this sacrificial idolatry was a bunch of nonsense. Besides, idols were only pieces of wood, rock, or metal. And in in verse 4, Paul agrees, we read it. He states, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. There is no God but one. In other words, these believers did not view the gods to which people sacrificed animals as having any reality. So they said, it doesn't make any difference. They had lots of spiritual knowledge, and they were proud of it. They were proud of it. They looked condescendingly on this second group of people, which were new believers, new believers. These were new Christians, and Fred, as part of this group, knew all of these facts about it, but, but, and he knew it, he knew the facts on a theoretical level. He knew it on an intellectual level. At, at this level, he knew idols were really nothing, but his conversion was too recent, it was too close. And he wrestled with this on the emotional level. His former associations with his past pagan life were still part of his consciousness. So he dealt with this and said, how do I, how do I deal with this? So what does this have to do with us today? In the 1970s, Christian rock music began to find its way into Christian churches. The Christian music artists took contemporary, a contemporary form of art and communication, put Christian lyrics to it. It was a lot like what Martin Luther and, and Charles Wesley and John Wesley did in their day. Some thought rock music was more communication than art, but that's a discussion we can have later. I, I loved it, you know. It seemed as if I'd been singing ancient hymns for about 235 years, and I needed music I related to. Okay, I was looking for music I could relate And I bought all the Christian rock I could find and afford. All the records and tapes, some of you don't know what a record or tape is, but you can ask your parents about that. You've never seen a cassette tape, that's okay. Well, we had a young college student named Denny, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ, brand new convert. And his friend brought him to our church to be part of the youth ministry. And as the youth pastor, I was trying to integrate him into this new Christian walk. And so I wanted to give him some good Christian music alternatives, some Christian rock music. So I gave him some of my tapes and said, listen to this, this will be great. Well, Danny listened to only part of one song and he shut it off. And he said, I can't listen to that. Stunned, I said, why not? He told me he had come out of a very wild party lifestyle, alcohol, drugs, and orgies, and his experience of wild parties tripping on drugs. And when he heard the style of music, he associated it immediately with his past pagan lifestyle. It's like, wow. The associational factors. Danny could deal with music on a theoretical Theoretical plane. In other words, it's just a musical style. It's a genre, you know, theoretically. On an intellectual level, music is basically physics and mathematical relationships. In fact, music is amoral. You can't attach a morality to music. The lyrics create moral content, but that's the lyrics. You just take the music style, and, and it is amoral. It's just a music style. But on the emotional level, The associations were too strong, and when he heard that style of music, it brought him back to that pagan lifestyle, and he could not listen to it. His past was too close, it was too recent. We can't lightly disregard associational factors. And when I've talked to people about associational factors when it comes to music or anything else, I ask them, which way does it move you? Does it move you closer to God? 
or further away from God. And for him, it was too recent. His associations were too recent. Just like Fred associating meat with the pagan idolatry. Says, if I feel guilty, I must be guilty. For the Corinthians, eating meat that had been offered to idols, idols violated the new believer's conscience, and therefore Paul uses a term, and we've used this a lot, it's called a stumbling block, or an obstacle, an obstacle to their faith. So he said, this can be an obstacle to your faith. So what was the Corinthian church solution? It's what we like to do in the church today, too. It was knowledge, knowledge. Give these people knowledge. You teach them enough, and they're going to snap out of it. Mature believers said, we have knowledge, therefore we are free. And so they said, just give them knowledge, and they'll snap out of this. But Paul says, no. Paul, who more than any other writer taught Christians to celebrate their freedom in Christ, says no. And then he draws a contrast in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 8. We read it. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. He contrasts knowledge. He says, knowledge puffs up. It makes arrogance. It, it produces pride. Okay? Love, on the other hand, builds up, it edifies, brings knowledge of God, and demonstrates the true knowledge of God. Does Paul say knowledge is bad? No. But true knowledge, true knowledge, never does anyone harm. True knowledge is demonstrated in love, in love. Gordon Fee writes, and this is in your notes, knowledge that harms is not complete knowledge, but partial knowledge. Knowledge that harms is not complete knowledge, but partial knowledge. In other words, we, it means we know some things, but we don't have the whole picture. Let me illustrate. In 1988, I performed a wedding. And the reception that followed was held in a beautiful country club in town. The reception was well underway when Judy and I arrived, and in the large lobby, waiters were circulating with trays full of champagne, and they also had an open bar, which was typical. Several of our church members, all mature believers, some of my leaders, were having champagne. These people had freedom by knowledge and self-control. In other words, they didn't have a problem with having alcohol. It wasn't a, a stumbling block to them. And they would say things like, Jesus turned water into wine, Jesus drank wine. And they'll admit that the Bible warns of the dangers of alcohol and the prohibition against drunkenness. But they said, you know, we've got freedom. But if one truly knows the Bible, knowledge, the absolute, we, we know that alcohol is not a black and white issue. It's not a black and white issue. Now, these church people had no personal problem with having a glass of alcohol. They had freedom, but they did not have complete knowledge. They had incomplete knowledge, only knowledge for themselves. What their incomplete knowledge did not include was the fact that there were four people in that room. One, two, three, four people from our church in that room that were recovering alcoholics including 
a 15-year-old boy who had just come out of alcohol rehab that very week. They had knowledge for themselves, but they didn't know anything else. Knowledge dictates one action. Total knowledge would dictate a totally different action. Freedom dictates one action. Love dictates an entirely different action. And Paul calls this action a stumbling block. A stumbling block. Alcohol is just one potential stumbling block. Other examples could be inviting someone to a questionable movie who has an addiction to pornography. Eating sweets in, someone, in front of someone who's a diabetic and can't eat certain things. Using a credit card in front of a shopaholic. You can name it. There are a lot of things. And our actions will either help or hurt. And they're rarely, very rarely, simply neutral. They either help or hurt. We can say it's not my problem or we can say it is my problem. Because we are part of the same family, the same body, the same team. I will express my love, and I love you more than I love exercising my freedoms. I love you more than I love exercising my freedoms. A quote from Gordon Fee in your notes. Freedom moves in the direction of individualized existence. Freedom moves in the direction of individualized existence, while love moves in the direction of community and care for others. Let me say that again. Freedom moves in the direction of individualized existence while love moves in the direction of community and care for others. To some, freedom had become the highest good since it led to the exaltation of the individual. For Paul, the opposite prevails. Love means the free giving up of one's rights for the sake of others and for life together in the community. And that's the aim of salvation. Sounds downright un-American, doesn't it? It does. Verse 8 says this, Food does not bring us near to God, and we are no worse if we do not eat, nor better if we do. In other words, we don't become right before God by exercising or not exercising that freedom, whatever that freedom is. But he says in verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Stumbling block. And you, it, let me tell you something. Stumbling block is a serious, serious issue. In Mark 9, 42, Jesus said this. He used exaggeration, but he said this. He said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Whoa. Strong words. Now, He's using exaggeration. Following is the passage that it encourages cutting off your hands or feet or plucking out your eye. But he's basically saying stumbling block, stumbling anybody is a serious issue. Gordon Fee says the issue is not just that of offending someone. It's causing another to emulate. Not just observing, but involving. And this could be an issue of influencing an alcoholic unknowingly to take another drink because they saw you but more so, if you encourage them by offering them a drink, you actually try to involve them. Serious issues, stumbling blocks. We have to know. In churches where we've served in, in leadership, since we don't know everybody's past and we don't know where everybody's coming from, we've chosen to, to take a stand on church, church-related meetings and small groups, et cetera. We just said, 
no alcohol because we don't know what's going to stumble people. Anything to do with unhealthy eating, just any numbers of things. What can we do to help people and not stumble them? Not stumble them. Next Sunday, I'll be talking about some practical implications and applications of this principles. We can be influencing by observation or by involvement. And if you are in leadership, if you are in leadership, you know that your behavior is probably much more influential because people not only observe, but they are involved because of you. We need to be careful what we do and say in our freedoms. So the Corinthian solution was knowledge. What was Paul's solution? Paul's solution was very simply love. It was love. It was love. Now I want to look at some principles. I want to look at some principles. First of all, letter A, knowledge brings freedom, also arrogance. Knowledge should lead to love, but sometimes it makes us proud. And I, I've seen people that are, they, they say, I have the freedom to do this, I have the freedom to do that, and they flaunt it. There are churches I, I, I know of and still know of in the Seattle area where we were for many years that flaunted their freedom, and they, they basically promoted their freedom for use of alcohol. And, and it was destructive. It was very destructive in the lives of people that some, we have, we have a friend of our daughters who bought it hook, line, and sinker, didn't realize that alcoholism was a weakness in their family, and, and uh, next thing you know, he's got D- DWIs and he's in, in jail, and it was a travesty, but it was promoted, it was flaunted. We have the freedom. Letter B, freedom can be used for good or bad. It can be used selfishly or unselfishly. Letter C, loving my brother or sister is more important than exercising my freedoms. Loving my brothers is more important than exercising my freedoms. Letter D, to sin against my brother is actually to sin against Christ. Verse 12 says, when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Letter E, our actions can have eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. Verse 11 says, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed. Doesn't say he's inhibited, or it says he's destroyed. Destroyed by your knowledge. Destroyed refers to eternal loss. It talks about an eternal destiny lost because of a stumbling block. Now let's look at some guidelines very quickly as we close this morning. Guidelines, number six. Letter A, be aware. We must be aware of the issues people are dealing with. And we, many times if we've been a Christian for a long time, we lose touch with our culture. And we lose our awareness of the potential stumbling blocks, not only in the culture out there, but the culture people in the church that come in and they find Jesus Christ and they're dealing with issues. We must be aware. Be aware of what, we must stay informed. Secondly, be sensitive. Be sensitive. Get to know the people in our church family. Listen, learn. Find out what issues they might be dealing with. If a husband is so busy he's never at home to spend time with his family, don't try to involve him in a sports team or additional evening commitments. Be aware. If a person is an alcoholic, don't offer wine or beer to them in your home with dinner. Verse 13 says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. What a statement of love. Romans 14, 20 to 21 says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Okay? 
Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. And then Paul makes this statement. He says, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Be sensitive, be sensitive. Let us see, be intelligent, be intelligent. And here, we need to stay informed. You know, on the, on the black and white, it's, the Bible is very clear on some of those in the gray areas. We need to understand the whys and understand what's going on so that we can speak to our, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, the next chapter, verse 23, it says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, okay? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, and do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Few twists and turns in that passage. Know why you should or should not do certain things. Think it through. Number D, letter D, don't be paranoid. Okay, don't be paranoid. Jesus does intend for us to be free and to live in freedom. Okay? He intends for us to be in free and live in freedom. We can live our lives looking over our shoulder, paranoid we might do something that could possibly offend someone, and that's not freedom either. That's bondage. The key word here is balance. Balance. Letter E, be loving. Be loving. Much of our behavior has to do with our attitude, our motive, and our heart. Knowledge isn't the basis of our action. Love is the basis of our actions. Love builds people up, and love covers a multitude of sins. Finally, glorify God in all my actions. Glorify God in all of my actions. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's for God's glory. It's not for my benefit, but it's for the glory of God. Don't eat that. You don't know where it's been. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Next Sunday, okay, this is the second part of the series, we're gonna expand our understanding of these issues by looking at biblical absolutes, community standards, and personal convictions. Biblical absolutes, community standards, personal convictions, all as it relates to lifestyle. If, if you know somebody that was not here this Sunday, if you can make sure that they can listen, I'm actually going to hand out a transcript of, of both of these messages. Uh, this, this Sunday I'll do it, next Sunday, and then the Sunday after I'll hand that out, just to make sure uh, that we understand. But it's very important that if you're, here this, if you're not gonna be here next Sunday, please listen online or get the information. It's very important that we get the balance of these two together. So I just wanted to encourage you to do that. So, Isn't this fun? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us on a sea of subjectivity, that you give us guidelines and you give us insight. And I pray, God, that you would work in all of our lives to help us understand that, that it's not about us, it's about you and it's about loving one another. 
And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll give us sensitivity and awareness as we move forward as a body of believers. We thank you for what you're doing in the lives of each and every person. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we? Could you just have a seat for just a minute? I'm going to call him Pastor Damien. This is a, a little bit of a, a bittersweet Sunday uh, for us, a Sunday. Over the last four months, uh, we have had the privilege of partnering with Kingswood University in their student internship uh, program. And, uh, and I have been, I've been so blessed to be able to work side by side with, uh, with Noah Travis, to be able to watch this young man grow as, as he has thrown himself headfirst into ministry. One of the things that Kingswood prides itself on is preparing student leaders for ministry. And I have to tell you that I have seen that not only from the very beginning with Noah, but I saw it grow uh, throughout the process of, of his internship. And this is our last Sunday with Noah. Uh, after church today, uh, Noah's car is all packed up. He's going to get in the car and he's going to drive back to Indiana and then back to Canada for graduation. Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus says, uh, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. The harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. And I'm very proud. I'm going to lose it here. Um, very proud of this guy. Um, I'm, I'm proud of what God is doing in and through him and what God is going to continue to do in and through him as he's obedient. He says yes to God. He's an unconventional guy. But our church and our world need unconventional people to reach as many as we can for Christ. And so we're going to take some time and uh, we're going to do a prayer of commissioning uh, this morning. I'm going to invite Noah to, to join us up front here. And, and if you're able to, if you want to come up, and we believe that in the laying on of hands, if you want to come up and lay hands on him or on you know somebody that's, that's laying hands on him, we're going to pray uh, a prayer of commissioning. I want to go ahead and invite you up uh, right now. We're going to do this. If you want to stay in your seat, if you just do this, this may be a little bit weird, but if you just want to stretch a hand out towards the front here as, as we pray, we're going we're gonna to lift Noah up here. Father God, the Lord of all of creation, of all the heavens and the earth, the one who speaks and there is life, who, breathe, who, who speaks and there is light, who breathes and there is life, you have called this young man to give himself to you in service. God, we thank you for what you have done up to this point, how you have grown him, how you have taught him. God, we thank you for everything that you've done so far up to this point. God, we see the evidences of your Holy Spirit at work in him. We see the giftings of your spirit. We see the, the signs of, of, of his faith in you, his, his complete obedience to you. And so, God, this morning, as a church, as, as one portion of your kingdom work, we want to join together in unity to commission this young man for the works that you have for him. God, we thank you ahead of time for the eternities that will be impacted by the works of this young man. We pray for the words that he will speak 
that they would be filled with your hope and your grace and your anointing. We pray for the works of his hands that you would bless them, that when, he, when people see Noah Travis, that they would see the work of Jesus Christ in him. And God, we thank you today that he does not go out of here as, as simply a student or as a former intern, but he goes out as a fully commissioned worker for your harvest. And so, God, we thank you that, that from this time forward, that as, uh, as Noah walks uh, with you, that he would walk, that he walks boldly in the person that you have created him to be. And so, God, we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you would anoint him for everything that you have set aside for him, the work that you have created him for. God, we're, we're so blessed to have had these last four months with Noah. Thank you for the way that he has been a part of the transforming work that you have done in this place. We pray for safety of travel for him today. We pray for wisdom in the next steps for him. We pray for uh, his relationships that, that you would grow them in grace. And Lord, that you would be glorified in his life. We love you and we give you praise and we pray all of these things in the beautiful name of your son. Amen. Make sure that you take some time on your way out of here. Noah's going to be uh, out in the, uh, the foyer here. Make sure that you take some time and, uh, and share some encouraging words uh, with him. And I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Pastor Mark for the benediction. Thank you, Pastor David. Let's pray. Now may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship and the power of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all who in Christ Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed.